Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome to our time of study in God's Word. This is study number 35 through this series in the book of Revelation. And the title of our study today is Singing the New Song. And today we're going to look at Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you first for the word that you've given to us that, that is inspired and errant, sufficient, clear, and authoritative to our lives. Lord, as we look at this great text, may we be reminded of all that you've done for us in Christ and how through the Holy Spirit you have given us new hearts that, that should sing and delight in endless praise to you for the grace of God. And so, Lord, we pray as we look at this time now, this text now, that you would that you would illuminate it, that you would open our eyes to see all that's in it, that in the brief minutes that we're together today, that you would use this time and your word to plant it deep in our hearts and our minds, that we might not just worship you in part, but in whole, and honor you in all of life, all for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Revelation 14. Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like, the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is widely considered the most read book in the English language after the Bible. This spiritual classic is well-beloved to Christians because of its biblical accuracy in depicting the challenges of the life of faith. But there's another reason for Pilgrim's Progress popularity it's, a, it's its vision of the hope of heaven, despite the challenges posed by the Slaw of Despawn, Vanity Fair, and the Dragon Napoleon, and Doubting Castle. Every time you read the book, Christian succeeds in reaching his goal by faith. Well, Revelation was written to convey the same message of hope to John's first century readers. Now, we realize this in the vision that begins in chapter 14. And here John repeats an earlier vision of the 144,000 redeemed saints who were seen in chapter 7 amid the world's persecution and calamities. And now the redeemed church has reached the glorified Christ. After the deadly warfare was 
portrayed in chapters 12 and 13, chapter 14 begins in Revelation 14, verse 1. Behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Like Pilgrim's Progress, Revelation 14 assures struggling Christians that their perseverance and faith will lead to salvation. And the reason for our confidence is not our proudness in slaying dragons or wrestling beasts, but that Jesus Christ, the Lamb, was slain, and he stands exalted in sovereign authority on the heavenly Zion. Simon Kissmacher writes, The Lamb stands majestically on Mount Zion as a victor over all the anti-Christian forces in the world. And thus the saints must take heart and not despair, for they share in the victory of the Lamb. In John 10.28, Jesus promised that those who follow him in faith will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And this doctrine is graphically depicted in the vision of the 144,000 gathered with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Last seen, this assembly was beset with many dangers in the great tribulation that is the church age, including the warfare of the dragon and his two beasts. And so from a worldly perspective, it might seem that none of them would arrive safely in heaven. Now on Mount Zion, we find that not one of them has been lost. John sees not 129,600, which would be a 90% success rate, or even 143,999, with only a single precious sheep having perished. Instead, the exact number of those who began the journey of salvation through faith arrived safely in his presence. In the terms of Psalm 23, every one of those who begins saying, The Lord is my shepherd, does in fact dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In fact, in, in saying this, we need to prove that the 144,000 presents the entirety of the people of God, past, present, and future. Now, some argue that this glorious gathering consists only of the early church martyrs, those who died for their Christian testimony or that it literally numbers the ethnic Jews converted immediately before Christ's second coming. Well, one way to show that the 144,000 stands for all believers is to see how it represents both the Old and the New Testament eras. This number joins together the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Christ, 12 times 12 multiplied by a 1,000 to depict a great multitude that no one can number, Revelation 7-9 says. And furthermore, the descriptions given to the 144,000 in this passage are true of the entirety of the people of God. First John identifies them in verse 1 of chapter 14 as having his, Christ's name, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Previously, we were told that everyone, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave in Revelation 13, 16, Receive the mark of the beast on the forehead and on the hand. And this mark represents the mark bearers embrace of the anti-Christian world system in their thinking and in their deeds. And the only exceptions are those whose names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, Revelation 13.8 says. In fact, according to Revelation, there are only two kinds of people. Those who bear the mark of the beast in service to Satan through sin and unbelief, and those who bear the seal of God, belonging to him through faith in Christ alone. And so to see the 144,000 as those marked with the seal of God is to say that they represent the entirety of Christians from all ages. G.K. Beale says the, hundred, the number 144,000 connotates 
and the completeness of God's true people. An antithesis to the 666 on the foreheads of the beast's followers, which connotates their incompleteness in achieving the divine design of humanity. If you sat down with a Christian and a non-Christian today, there would not be a visible mark to distinguish them. Revelation is speaking in symbols of the great spiritual reality that corresponds to faith or unbelief. To say that God's name is written on someone's forehead is a figurative way of stating that the person belongs to him and he is they are protected by his presence. What an encouragement this is to every Christian today. Having believed on Jesus, you know that God has marked you as belonging to himself for all eternity. In fact, this relates to Isaiah 49, verse 16, where God declares that he has marked himself with your name. When he says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And the reason that we can speak of, a, of eternal security for those who believe in Christ is God's sovereign determination to possess and even to protect all those whom he's claimed for himself. And the seal is furthermore an emblem of the allegiance to those who bear it. The 144,000 consists of those whose pledge has been given to God through faith in Christ in contrast to those who are loyal to the world and its beastly dominion. In this way, the vision shows that you are ultimately defined by your stance regarding Jesus Christ. To embrace him in faith requires you to renounce your allegiance to the world and sin, but ensures an eternal destiny with him in glory. To deny Christ and the gospel is to remain a slave to the world in sin, enjoying in this life the poison pleasures that they offer, but in the day of Christ's return receiving the eternal punishment reserved for his rebellious enemies. The 144,000 are also described as those who have been redeemed from the earth in Revelation 14.3. The Lamb is not standing with a spiritual elite from among believers or a future gathering of ethnic Jewish believers, but with all who have been redeemed from sin by the blood of Christ. How grateful we can be that this victory with Christ is not secured by our spiritual performance or by our merits, but or nor, nor by the quantity or the quality of our giftedness, or by the status we enjoy in church or the world. Instead, our position of privilege with Christ, our value in him, our participation in his salvation depends on the blood that he shed for our sins. All Christians have the glorious identity of those redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1.19 says. And John further describes 144,000 as the first fruits for God and the Lamb in Revelation 14 verse 4. And this identifies them as, as believers already in heaven in John's time or the band of early church martyrs, since the first fruits were the initial portion of the harvest that symbolized the whole. And yet the Bible also speaks of the first fruits as all those who belong to God, in contrast with the unbelieving world. James 1.18 describes Christians as the first fruits of his creatures, that is the portion of humanity that is taken by God for his own possession. And Jeremiah 2.3 describes all Israel as the first fruits of his harvest. And since the 144,000 are the redeemed who bear the name of Christ, it's best to take first fruits as referring to those who are precious to the Lord God, who belong to him and are offered for his glory. That is the entirety of the people of God, in contrast to those polluted by adultery, idolatry in the world. 
How can you be numbered in this glorious body simply by believing and trusting in the finished and sufficient work of Christ? John wrote his gospel, he says in John 20, verse 31, so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, now having clarified the identity of the 144,000, we need to understand their location. John saw them on Mount Zion with the Lamb, Revelation 14.1 says, and whereas Satan the dragon stood on the sand of the sea in Revelation 12.17, in calling forth the beast to aid his rebellion, Jesus stands on the rock of God's holy mountain with his saints. Well, scholars debate whether this mountain, Mount Zion, is on earth or in heaven. But the way of evidence points to heaven since Christ was last seen there in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 14. Revelation 14, 3 mentions the four living creatures and the 24 elders who serve before Christ's throne above. And yet the point is that Mount Zion is located at the end of history, at the place of salvation's completion. In fact, God said in Psalm 2, 6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This statement referred not merely to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but to the end-time city where God dwells with and provides security for his people. In fact, seeing that vast multitude of the church present with Christ on Mount Zion, we know that our victory is established and even secured. And so by seeing the divinely ordained end of our salvation, John and his readers are encouraged as they face Roman persecution. And his example urges Christians to think from the end of history back to our present trials. Rather than starting where we are in our weakness, doubt, and earthly affection, affliction, looking forward from them with anxiety over our future prospects, we should reverse the process. We should instead fix our minds and our hearts on the certainty of the future, on Mount Zion where the Lamb stands in victory, working back to find hope in our present trials. The movie, the movie Gettysburg relates the exploits of General John Buford, who commanded the Northern Cavalry during that decisive battle of the Civil War. Buford had suffered through prior defeats when the Southerners enjoyed superior terrain. He therefore growled and said this, We must deny the high ground to the enemy, and his fighting advance enabled the Union Army to occupy the heights. Christians need to have no anxiety when it comes to our spiritual warfare against Satan, sin, and worldly opposition. As the clouds are parted in this vision, John is enabled to look up and to see Christ standing on the mount. The Lamb holds the high ground eternity, eternally, looking down on the conflict below. In fact, seeing Jesus standing on Zion, we are assured that all of God's promise to us will be fulfilled, that those who bear his name will be kept safe, and that our lives of faith will be crowned with success. Samuel Rutherford spoke of this theme with his dying words, which Anne Cousin recorded in song, and they say this, The Lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. You see, those who bear the name of God not only enjoy his protection, they partake in his attributes. John's vision thus describes the character of the redeemed, urging that for believers, the ultimate question is not physical prowess or political or economic power. It's a question of true spirituality. 
Just as it is Christ who secures the victory of his people, it is Christ's likeness that not only marks them out in the world, but gives them power in spiritual warfare. In fact, the first description of Christian character has perplexed many readers. Revelation 14 verse 4 says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. And it would be possible to take this verse in a number of wrong ways. For instance, the 144,000 might be thought of as a spiritual elite who gain their status through celibacy as a meritorious practice. Some feminist scholars have misused this verse to complain about the Bible's supposed antipathy for women. Some might also draw a negative attitude to sexuality in general, since sexual relations seem to be described as defiling. Well, we need to understand that all of these views are mistaken. Taken the first, the last verse, the Bible teaches that sexual intimacy between a husband and wife is a holy gift from God designed to bind their hearts together in marriage. Sexual purity in scripture involves both abstinence outside of marriage and faithfulness in marriage. Hebrews 13.4 commands, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. It is adultery, not sex itself, that defiles the marriage bed. You see, Paul was grateful that his singleness enabled him to be highly focused in ministry. He says this in 1 Corinthians 7.7. But Paul not only uses marriage as a metaphor for the union of Christ and his church, as he does in Ephesians 5.32, but he stresses that sexual union is essential to marital faithfulness in 1 Corinthians 7.5. And as for women in general, the Bible presents a positive view and often highlights their contributions in the kingdom work of Christ, not the least as mothers and as wives. In fact, one of John's most important designations for the church is that she is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, Revelation 21.2 says. So how then do we avoid taking this statement as describing the 144,000 as celibate men, who have gained their status by maintaining their virginity? Well, the answer, familiar now to our study of Revelation, lies in taking this statement symbolically. Philip Hughes writes, The purity in question is that of spiritual faithfulness. And Leah Morris says, It means that the people in question have kept themselves completely free from intercourse with the pagan world system. They have lived up to what is implied in their betrothal to Christ. But we need to understand that spiritual purity cannot be separated from moral purity. The apostles lived in a Roman world that it was even more sexually debauched than the decadent West is today. And for this reason, the apostles placed a priority on sexual purity, requiring Christians to engage in determined repentance from sexual sins. Paul added the encouraging message that Christians, having been purified in Christ, can regain our virginity when it's been lost. And although Paul condemned the sexually immoral, the adulterers, and practicing homosexuals, he said this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, not only do Christians have a moral obligation to observe purity, but this matter deeply affects us in spiritual warfare. John's language may reflect the preparation of Israel for battle, in which the spiritual purity of soldiers was represented by the abstinence from sexual relations, such as in Deuteronomy 23.10. 
the symbolism of the church, including men and women, single and married, as celibate soldiers, portrays the single-minded loyalty that we owe to our captain. And we should note as well that chapter 14 goes on to speak of the whore Babylon the Great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, as we see in Revelation 14, verse 8. And so verses 4's emphasis on spiritual and moral purity contrasts with the state of those who have defiled themselves through adultery with the idolatrous world system. In Revelation 14.4, we see that in addition to being pure, Christ's 144,000 are obedient. But our text there says it is, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Where Christ calls us to go, we must go. What Christ calls us to do, we must do. His way becomes our way, and though it may seem narrow, it leads to eternal life. You see, following Christ involves belief in his teaching, submission to his command, and the zealous promotion of his gospel cause. As Christ sacrificed himself for us, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices in service to the Lord God. As is what the description means, first fruits. Seeing the Lamb exalted on Mount Zion, we are reminded that following Jesus leads us to salvation and even to glory itself. John's vision defines Christian character in terms of truthful speech. Revelation 14, verse 5 says, And in their mouths no lie was found. H.B. Swede writes, After purity, truthfulness was the most distinctive mark of the followers of Christ when contrasted with their heathen neighbors. The ninth commandment requires that believers speak truthfully, and among those whom Revelation 21, verse 8 sees, cast in the lake of fire are all liars. See, Christian salvation stems from the truth of God's word, and it produces lives of truth. Whereas the world exchanges the truth about God for a lie, Romans 1.25 says, believers reject idolatry and actively promote gospel truth, by which liars and all other sinners may be redeemed. G.K. Beale says this, What is in mind here is not merely general truthfulness, but the saints' integrity and witnessing to Jesus when they are under pressure from the beast and the false prophet is compromising their faith. So John summarizes that, that by this Christ-like character, the redeemed church is blameless, Revelation 14.5 says. The point is not that godly character merits salvation, but rather that it enables us to serve God as acceptable offerings of sacrifice of thanks and praise to him. The outline of Christian character will enable believers to make a difference for the kingdom of Christ, purity, obedience, and truthfulness. They really, really matter. But we need to understand only Jesus is blameless in being without any sin. But as redeemed sinners, Christians should be able to commend our testimony to Christ with lives of spiritual integrity, power, and gospel courage. In fact, Douglas Kelly points out that these attributes are not like the world's weapon of mass destruction. Instead, he says, they are weapons of mass resurrection. Ultimately, these spiritual qualities endangered by Jesus and his army, as he is standing on Mount Zion, orchestrating it all, will overcome all the violence and the wickedness of a satanic world system. John's vision has shown us the identity, the location, the character of Christ's redeeming church. His emphasis, lastly, is on the activity of the redeemed as they worship God and the Lamb in joyful song. Revelation 4.3 says they were singing a new song before the throne. 
John writes in verse 2 of chapter 14, he heard a, a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. He's referring here to the worship of the redeemed, since only the 144,000 can learn this song. Now, many Christians have reveled in the experience of singing together with a great worshiping crowd, either at a large church or at a Christian conference. The singing and glory here will excel any experience of worship that we ever have had. Booming with the roar of a waterfall and the sound of thunder, since it is done by a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all peoples and tribes and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, as Revelation 7-9 describes 144,000. Now the singing is marked not only by the volume, but also by a heart-uplifted passion. And John compares it in verse 2 to the sound of harpists playing on their harps. William Hendrickson writes that although it will be majestic, sublime, constant, it will at the same time be the most lovely, the sweet, and tenderest song you've ever heard in your life. In a sermon on this text, in fact, Jonathan Edwards noted reasons why the saints in heaven glorify God so fervently. He says, first, it's because they finally see God in his glory, and those who cannot see God cannot but praise him. Such a glorious sight will awaken and rouse all the powers of the soul and it will irresistibly impel and draw them into acts of praise. Secondly, the redeemed will then be perfect in humility. A proud person is for assuming all praise to himself. It's humility only that will enable us to say from the heart, not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but unto thy name be the glory. Third, our love to God and Christ will be perfect. The grace of love will be exalted to its greatest heights and its highest perfection in heaven, and love will vent itself in praise. Heaven will ring with praise because it is full of love to God. Edward's explanation for heaven's praise provides us with an agenda for worshiping God more fully now than on earth, by seeing him more clearly through the study of God in his word, by humbling ourselves before his awesome and his holy majesty, and by cultivating a love for God on the basis of his redeeming love for us, in Jesus Christ alone. John tells us that the redeemed on Mount Zion sing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders, Revelation 14.3 says. And this shows us that our worship is directed to God and to the Lamb, whose throne is surrounded by these glorious beings. We sing a new song not because we've discovered something different from the salvation message taught all throughout Scripture, but because our experience has provided fresh instances of its power and its glory. In the Old Testament, the new song was sung in response to a fresh instance of the salvation of the Lord. And when our deliverance has been fully accomplished, the new song will praise the Lamb who redeemed us with his blood and made us his kingdom of priests. Catherine Hankey writes, And when in scenes of glory I sing the new song, Told me the old, old story that I've loved so long. Because a new song celebrates Christ the Redeemer, verse 3 says, No one can learn the song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the world, or from the earth. Only the Christian who has tasted the bitterness of conviction for sin, who knows the joy of the song of the redeemed in Christ, only the struggling believer suffering the barbs of the dragon, the beast, and the, and the false prophet in this evil world lifts up their heart with true joy at the sight of the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. 
In fact, in applying John's vision of the Lamb enthroned in Mount Zion, in which we see the identity, the location, the character, and the activity of the redeemed, we need to think back to another situation that took place long before John wrote Revelation. Second Chronicle 20, chapter 20, tells us of how the godly king Jehoshaphat received news of the onslaught of armies from the east. In worldly terms, it was a hopeless situation, just as was the situation that John and his churches faced with the Roman emperor, and that the church has faced since. But Jehoshaphat lifted his face to heaven, and he gathered all the people to pray for salvation. And in reply, God told the king to take his soldiers and advance on the enemy in faith, Second Chronicles 20.17 says. We read that Jehoshaphat took the army forth led by priests who were singing Psalm 118 in Second Chronicles 20 verse 21, which says, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And the Bible tells us what happens in, in 2 Chronicles 20 verse 22. And they began to sing and praise. The Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Sur, who had come against Judah so that they were then routed. This example does not reason that the only Christian response to spiritual opposition is to hold a hymn sing. But it does mean that if we take our eyes off the daunting opposition and fix them on the glory and the might of our Savior, seeing Christ standing on the Mount Zion, we may be refreshed with spiritual power and hope. And with such a vision, we will not fear to proclaim God's word in sincerity and conviction, and we will not think lightly about the power of prayer. We will not allow our worship in the name of Christ to be corrupted by the world. With Christ reigning, sovereign, and triumph, surely when we begin to sing and to praise him in the presence of every earthly foe, relying confidently on his saving provision, we will not fail to see his victory and then rejoice to sing the new song in praise of our Redeemer. You know what, friends? Today we are challenged on every front. The news is so depressing, so discouraging. Every day there's there's some form of protest or some kind of news of a fall of a Christian leader, and on and on we can go. And these kinds of things, they can cripple our hearts. They can cause us to be so discouraged, so sad. But what we see in this text is this world is not our home. And Paul tells us this in Philippians 3.20 and verse 21. Our citizenship is not here on earth. Although we are citizens here, I'm not saying that we're not here on earth. But our ultimate allegiance isn't to this world. This world, along with all that is in it, is passing away. And that's good news. Because it means that Christ is returning. It means in the present that we are to live faithfully as servants of Christ. But we fix our eyes. As Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, on that, on the day of the Lord. And we live in light of the return of Christ. And it's because of these truths as we massage them deeper and deeper into our hearts, we will do as these saints do now. We will worship him. I, I have said throughout this series, and I'll say it again. It's not only sound expository sermons that we need. It's rich, sound uh, songs that are rich in the Bible and in sound theology that we need. You know, we 
As Christians, we have had our heart of stone replaced with a new heart by the Lord. And he has given us new affections and new desires. He's given us a new mission and a purpose in the gospel. He indwells us to that end through the Holy Spirit of God. And he empowers us to make disciples and make disciples and make disciples, all to the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. I don't know what's happening in your life. I don't know whether you have disappointing news or discouraging news or you've had some good news. But here's what I do know. If you're a child of God, you already have this new song in your heart because you know that Christ has redeemed you. He has rescued you. He's adopted you. He's declared you not guilty. You are his and he is yours. There's no other greater news in this world that should lead us to sing a new song a song to the Lord from our hearts. And, and to live in response. See, the only proper response then to the great, this great, the great grace of God is a life of worship. A life of, 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 that honors God from the heart. Not perfectly. I'm not saying, I'm not advocating perfectionism. But by the grace of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, God desires to grow us in these things. He desires for us, to, for our affections to be filled afresh, to be stirred afresh for the glory of Christ. What that means is, is that the more that we meditate on the grace of God and the finished and sufficient work of Christ, the more we will naturally sing praises to God, the more we will extol his virtues among the nations, the more we will desire to share Christ with those who are hurting and broken by sin and desperately in need of the grace of Christ. And, and, and the more that we meditate on the glory of the grace of God, the more we will want to minister in our local churches to those who are hurting in a gracious and loving manner. And on and on we can go. The more that you meditate on the grace of God and the gospel, the more God will stir your affections and the more that you'll desire as a child of God and dwell in a power to that end to make disciples of Christ. And all of this is a matter of worship. And what is, what is at the core of worship? What is at the core of our worship? It's the grace of God in Christ. So it's not just a matter of you won't worship. God, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity on your hearts. You will worship. You were created for that end. In fact, the chief end of man is to, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, is picking up on these themes of worship from scripture. You see, you as a child of God, have been bought at such a high cost. The cost of the, the, the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. So you can sing this new song. And you will sing this song forever and ever to the Lamb of God who was slain. So let us not just say the right words. Not, let us not just pledge allegiance to the cross and the resurrection that we have a new allegiance, that we have a new king in Jesus. But let's get to work by the grace of God 
to do what he's called us to do, to make, to make worshipers of the great King and Lord Jesus, who has redeemed us, who has reconciled us, who has justified us. We are his friends. We are his and he is ours. So let us sing that new song and let us meditate on the grace of God in the gospel. Would you pray with me now? Father in heaven, we thank you that it's because of Christ and your finished and sufficient work that we can sing the new song. Because it's not because of us, it's because you have delivered us. You have redeemed us. You have reconciled us. You've ransomed us. You've forgiven us. You've justified us. You've adopted us. You've imputed the righteousness of Christ to our account by which we are saved. Lord, we thank you for, in, in countless ways, you've, you've sealed us by the Spirit. You predestined us before the foundations of the world. Lord, we, we stand amazed at the work of Jesus, at, at its multitude of beautiful ways that you have saved us, and they all express the truth that you alone are the only one that can save. You are the only one that can satisfy. And you're the only one that can turn worshipers of self into worshipers of you. So I pray, Lord, that you would open eyes, open ears today, and that you would save sinners as only you can. And I pray, Lord, that you would that you would convict where conviction is needed in our lives and comfort us where we need comfort. And I pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified by our lives as we seek to walk by faith and not by sight, trusting in the promises of Christ that alone truly do satisfy, sustain, secure, and help us, Lord, to fill our minds and fill our hearts with heaven, the hope of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.